Welcome to Cancer Conversations, a podcast series from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode from February 2015, Dr. Lisa Diller answers questions about the unique needs and concerns for pediatric patients and families transitioning off treatment, including fertility issues, follow-up care, and emotional challenges young survivors face. Dr. Diller is the Chief Medical Officer of Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center and the Clinical Director for Pediatric Oncology at Dana-Farber Boston Children's. She is also the Medical Director of the David B. Perini Jr. Quality of Life Clinic at Dana-Farber Boston Children's. Ann Dorr from Dana-Farber's Communications Department joins her for the conversation. Let's get started. Sure. First question. Can you discuss some of the most common late effects of childhood cancer and how they differ from adult survivorship? Sure. Um, first, let's talk about what are late effects. Um, you know, when people are treated for any disease, and in particular cancer, and they become long-term survivors, often the treatment that we use can affect the quality of their life or their health in the distant future. Even though they're cured of their disease, they may still have what we call late effects often from their treatment, sometimes from the tumor themselves or complications of the treatment. Um, so the question that you asked about what's different, what's different, uh, what are late effects in children, how are they different from adults, you have to think about what children are. They're small, uh, first of all, and so if you give a treatment that's supposed to prevent cancer from growing, it often has the side effect of preventing that part of a child from growing. Right. So short stature, bones not growing properly, the heart not growing properly, going through puberty, not growing into your pubertal development. That's all very different when you think about children as opposed to adults who have already fully grown, gone through puberty, whatever. So when you look at late effects in children versus adult, you're really, one really has to look at the developmental stage of the child. It's very different to treat an infant than a 17-year-old in predicting late effects. Now, what are some of the ways that you try to prevent some of these side effects? Uh, well, some of the side effects we see um, are directly, or ha research has shown they're directly related to uh, specific factors. So first of all, uh, radiation is one of the uh, therapies that we use that is very likely to have late effects, particularly in children. So what we like to do when we possibly can is not treat children with radiation. Now some cancers, in order to be able to cure them, we have to use radiation. So then we try to limit the dose of radiation or make the field of radiation smaller or even put off radiation as long as possible to allow for a child to grow. That would be an example of prevention. Another example of prevention is uh, using drugs or other strategies that we know counteract the effect of a specific uh, drug that we give. So for example, one of the drugs we give a lot and we rely on a lot is called doxorubicin. It's a drug that treats many cancers in childhood but can affect heart function. Well, increasingly, we have agents that we can give at the same time as we give doxorubicin to prevent the late effect that might occur in the heart. This from a viewer, what kind of impact can childhood cancer treatment have on fertility later in life? Mm -hmm. uh, so we do see problems with fertility later in life uh, in uh, adults who were treated for childhood cancer. This is very dependent upon the dose of chemotherapy, the type of chemotherapy, and the presence or absence of radiation. 
The kinds of fertility problems that we see in boys is usually a low sperm count or in young men or men um, who receive certain drugs called um, alkylating agents that are likely to cause a low sperm count. For women, it's a little more complicated because uh, women can often have an effect on their fertility, which is early menopause. So they can be in their 20s and doing fine and having their menses, but the clock is ticking on them in terms of their fertility, maybe more quickly than it ticks on women in their 20s who haven't had childhood cancer. Right. Uh, another viewer says, I've been told insomnia is a common side effect. Do you have any advice on how to manage that? Hmm. I'm not an expert on insomnia. I can tell you that a large percentage of Americans have insomnia, not just childhood cancer survivors, probably 20 to 40% of us have insomnia. So it's hard to tell whether your insomnia is from your cancer treatment or just because it's a common problem. Um, there are lots of books to read these days about insomnia and, and strategies for insomnia that use something called cognitive behavioral therapy that focuses a lot on sleep hygiene and what happens when you go to sleep and what to expect when you go to sleep and sort of really do what we call psychoeducation so that you understand sleep better in order to address your insomnia and I'd start there. Great. Another viewer says, I was diagnosed with neuroblastoma 40 years ago. I am now 41. Since I was so young when going through treatment, could this have caused back problems, including scoliosis later in life? Uh, I'd need to know a little bit more about the actual treatment to answer that with absolute precision, but absolutely yes. Uh, if a child has surgery or radiation to a part of their body um, near their spine or involving their spine, Certainly scoliosis can be a long-term outcome that manifests, manifests itself over the years and can be associated with back pain. We've learned a lot now, as opposed to 40 years ago, about how to prevent that from happening so that a young baby today diagnosed with a tumor near the spine might have a much lower risk of scoliosis than this 41-year-old woman who had treatment for neuroblastoma 40 years ago, where we knew less. Right. Um, I know you touched on this a little bit, but when is it common to see late effects in children, Does it, and also does it depend on gender? Uh, when is it common to see late effects in children? I think we have to divide late effects up into early late effects, middle late effects, and late late effects because we see all different kinds of late effects at all different times. So for example, one of the drugs we use um, that's a very common cancer drug is called cisplatin, and it can cause hearing loss. Uh, and sometimes children need hearing aids, and um, sometimes they even are deaf, um, uh, rarely. So that occurs early, and you usually know if you have that late effect pretty soon after you complete your therapy. Now, the late effects associated with that, like how they do in school, and are they able to uh, uh, have success in school because of their hearing loss, that could be a middle late effect. They had the hearing loss right when they finished, but the actual late effect about learning and being successful in school might not manifest itself for years and years. Right. Uh, since childhood cancer treatments overall are becoming less toxic, do you anticipate or are you already seeing fewer late effects in patients treated more recently? Um, so the good news is yes, that for many of our most common childhood cancers, and in particular I'm thinking about childhood leukemia, 
the spectrum of late effects that we see today or expect to see from children treated today is very different from when the first children were treated here in Boston and in other places who were long-term survivors back in the 70s. Those children were treated with therapies that over the years we've learned how to get rid of and still increase the chances of survival. And we got rid of them, not because they didn't work, but because of late effects. On the other hand, there are some diseases that we have not done well with, and we've had to increase therapies over the years. And some of those increased therapies have actually resulted in cures where we didn't used to cure kids. So an example of that would be a child who presents with a um, very aggressive form of neuroblastoma. That years ago was not curable. Now it is curable, but in getting to that cure, we have discovered a whole new set of late effects. Mm -hmm. uh, what advice can you give to parents and survivors who are transitioning back into a school setting? What should patients know about late effects impacting a child's learning or, or acclimating back into, getting in back into school? Sure. Um, transitioning back to school is a really critical time. It's a difficult time for families and for children. We have services here that will help families do that, to meet with, with teachers, to meet with the school system, even to speak to children in the classroom who uh, uh, may be uh, having trouble understanding what happened to their classmate or why their classmate looks different and he or she is coming back to school. That's through our school liaison program, which does a wonderful job of that. Um, I think communication is probably the most important thing, communication between the parent and the school system, the treating physician or psychologist involved with the family or social worker and the school system. In terms of uh, the what to look for when a child or what to expect when a child is going back to school, one of the places that we um, keep our ears open for is when school gets cognitively harder um, kids can sometimes manifest difficulties that you didn't know existed earlier. So when you go back to school and you're in second grade or third grade and it's more about social integration and learning certain basic skills, some children can do perfectly well without any trouble. But then when they get to middle school and there's algebra and more sort of cognitive challenge, some of the cognitive late effects that we sometimes see from childhood cancer, that's when they emerge, that we didn't know they were there earlier. Would you say um, socially it's tougher for like an elementary school patient, age patient, or high school, or they each have their own? Well, they each have their own yeah. difficulties, I would say. Speaking to survivors who've gone through the gamut, the ones we hear the, when I speak to a young adult um, who had childhood cancer, the ones that have the deepest sense of loss and regret are the teenagers. You know, teen, uh, getting through high school is a challenging time for anyone, and some of the ways in which high school can be better is having friends, uh, going into sports, going to events, and those are just the things, events like proms and things, that, those are just the things that our kids miss out on. So I think they're the ones that have sometimes the hardest times. More difficult. Yeah. Uh, this from a viewer, is radiation to the upper abdominal area a risk factor for heart problems later in life? Again, that's a question that um, one, for an individual patient, I might want more information. Um, but I will say that when we radiate a little baby, um, let's say they have a tumor uh, in their upper abdomen. Uh, this is my little baby here, tumor in the upper abdomen. You can imagine that that radiation, to try to radiate that, we might also be radiating a little piece of heart. 
right? Because it's so close to each other. Similarly, we've seen um, children or young women, I should say, who were treated as babies with radiation that didn't involve their chest at all, but they had a higher risk of breast cancer because to, the babies are so small that the actual what we call scatter of radiation is such that we can, uh, radiation can end up in places in a small baby that we didn't expect them to, in a sense. So right. yes, I guess is the answer. It's possible <laughs> that um, radiation to the upper abdomen could hit or um, uh, involve the uh, ventricles of the heart and cause heart disease. And I'm guessing the follow-up to this, they say, if uh, how often would you recommend a heart echo or an EKG? Mm -hmm. that right, so that. we have specific recommendations based upon the treatment, drugs, uh, the radiation doses. And, um, and we can, in a long-term survivor visit, we can have any, um, uh, a schedule made that involves echocardiograms and EKGs to make sure the heart health is kept best. Uh, this just in, do childhood cancer survivors have lung problems later in life? Should they see a pulmonologist after treatment? Um, so again, different treatments might result in a different need for uh, having pulmonology involvement and lung problems. There are drugs, one the most common of which we use is called bleomycin, and that drug in fact can be associated with lung disease and we do recommend um, when children are old enough to do pulmonary function tests to do those tests. And if those tests are abnormal, then we might send a patient to a pulmonologist. And similarly, if a child who's a cancer survivor is having difficulty with breathing, not keeping up with their friends, always at the back of the pack when they're on the bicycle years later, one of the things we think about in that setting is, could the lungs be working wrong? Could there be a problem? And then we might do some testing then. How important is it for childhood cancer survivors to seek genetic testing uh, for their children to determine their cancer risk? Uh, to, for childhood cancer survivors' children, children? Well, the good news is that in large studies of offspring of childhood cancer survivors, the risk of cancer in their children has not generally been seen to be elevated, mm -hmm. except for some very rare cancer predisposition syndromes, uh, we don't see an overall risk in the children of childhood cancer survivors of getting cancer themselves. Now that being said, we're learning more and more about cancer and the genetics of cancer and predisposition to cancer, um, and more and more sort of family syndromes are uh, being detected um, over the past decade or so. So my suggestion there would be to make sure that any family history of cancer outside of your own personal history of being a childhood cancer survivor is kept track of, that you know your family history, you know what happens to your parents, your aunts, your uncles, your first cousins, um, and their children, so that we can, we can construct a family tree and then make a decision whether genetic testing is necessary. And then finally, for some very specific and rare childhood cancer diagnoses, for children who are survivors of those diagnoses, genetic counseling or genetic testing might be indicated just based upon that diagnosis. All the more reason why people should make sure to get specialized follow-up. Right. Can you discuss, I know it's a broad question, but some of the new research going on with childhood cancer survivorship, something that you, is uh, on the horizon that you think is exciting? Well, I think the first stage of childhood cancer survivorship research was really just figuring out who the survivors were and what their issues were. 
And then the next stage was figuring out which treatments we used that caused those issues so that we could change therapies now. And now I think we're in the stage of what can we do, as you asked earlier, to treat or prevent these issues. Um, so it's all about now intervention. I think that's the exciting piece in research right now. Um, one of the ones I think is really on the horizon, we're doing and will be growing over time, is to think about female fertility. As I said earlier, if you're a woman who had childhood cancer and you were treated with certain drugs, you might be at risk for early menopause. Well, years ago, there was nothing we could do about that. Then there became issues like uh, interventions like in vitro fertilization and egg donors. And now, in fact, one could go see a reproductive specialist and talk about freezing eggs. Um, so that if you're going to go through menopause when you're 30 and you're 20, and the doctor can help you determine your risk that you're going to go through menopause, that might be something you would consider, and we could never do that before. And those we're doing on a research basis as well as a clinical basis. All right, this just in. My daughter was diagnosed with neuroblastoma in 2009 at the age of four. She has been cancer-free since 2010, but has only grown a few centimeters each year since treatment. Will that change, and is there some way to pro uh, project her growth? Right. Um, I'm assuming, although I don't know, I don't think you said that the neuroblastoma was a high-risk neuroblastoma or the aggressive form. That's what I'll address. Um, we are seeing in neuroblastoma survivors a, uh, a, a, pro a real problem with growth um, and uh, seeing that children have um, had trouble kind of catching up on the lost growth that they had during treatment and are ending up after they go uh, through puberty or as adults as very short, you know, five feet tall, that kind of thing. I mean, it depends, but their um, short stature is a problem. In fact, we're just about to start a study nationally of long-term survivors of high-risk neuroblastoma to see if we could understand that better, to see which drugs might be causing that or which treatments, and that'll help us know what to do. For this particular family, I would recommend going, seeing, going to see an endocrinologist with some expertise in childhood cancer survivorship. Um, one of the problems we have seen in, child, in survivors of high-risk neuroblastoma has been a problem with not enough calories, nutrition. And if you don't have enough nutrition as a child, obviously you don't grow as well, so that's one of the first things we look at. But we have much more to learn about this issue. We don't really know what's causing it. Well, that leads to my next question. What kind of diet and exercise recommendations do you have for childhood cancer survivors? Healthy diet and <laughs> lots of exercise. Yeah. Um, you know, I think most exercise and most um, healthy diets that you would think about in a, quote, normal population, people who had no childhood cancer, are, would be the same um, in a childhood cancer survivors. We like to see um, uh, kids having a balanced diet and avoiding either getting overweight, which can happen, especially if you're um, not growing, you, you don't have the ability to grow in linear growth, you know, those calories have to go somewhere. So if for children who are fully grown to avoid overeating, and then on the other hand, to make sure you get enough calories for the kids who are still growing. And then exercise, really the whole gamut, there's really no restrictions on exercise. We sometimes tell people who have had drugs that might affect their heart to avoid, um, uh, doing exercises that um, cause sudden strain on the heart, like something I would never do, lifting 200 <laughs> pounds and barbells or whatever. But other than that, 
really any kind of exercise, especially aerobic exercise is great. Uh, this from a viewer who wants to learn about vaccinations and chemo. Can certain chemotherapies wash away vaccinations? Uh, so I think what that question means is if you've had your vaccinations and then you go on to get chemotherapy, are those vaccinations still working right. in you? And usually, except if you've had a bone marrow transplant, um, which is like a very strong cancer treatment, usually your vaccinations kind of hold. What happens in kids, though, is that they're in the middle of their vaccination cycle often. And so they miss vaccinations while they're getting their chemo. They're not fully vaccinated when they walk in the door or fully protected. And then when they're done with their chemotherapy, they need to get back on schedule. And we have specific recommendations about how they do that in a safe and effective way. Right. So talk to your doctor. Yes. Uh, what type of information should childhood cancer survivors make sure to give their pediatricians, internists, and OBGYN? Is that, I'm guessing there'd be a lot to that answer. A lot to that answer. I think um, one of the things we've learned in this era of understanding survivorship better is the importance of communication between the treating oncologist and the person or people who take care of the patient in their survivorship period. Um, you know, in the old days, when you finished treating a patient, you dictated a letter and someone typed it and you signed it and it went to the patient's paper chart. Well, those days are over now. Right. So now we need better ways, electronic ways, uh, organized ways, database-driven ways mm -hmm. to make sure that the information we have about a patient and how we treated him or her um, gets to the right people. Um, we call that now a treatment summary and survivorship care plan. Um, this is a uh, mechanism by which every oncologist um, should be pra or a, a part of the practice of every oncologist to complete, at the time of completion of therapy, to put together a summary of what it was the patient was treated with and how that patient should be followed. And that's across the board, both in adult oncology and pediatric oncology, this is becoming a standard of care. And for many women, they're taken care of by their gynecologist as a primary care provider, and so it could go to the gynecologist as well. One of the places we run into difficulty is actually because kids are with pediatricians for a number of years, and then they transfer to an internist, and how to make sure that transfer goes well. So that's another place to look at the problem. And this next question goes with that, how often should a childhood cancer survivor follow up with their oncologist, and I'm guessing if they're working together, there is no set time. There's no set time. Usually in the first couple of years after completion of therapy, there are multiple visits per year, often centered on making sure the tumor hasn't come back. But once you get to five years or 10 years after therapy, it's really dependent upon the number of complications, the rarity of the tumor itself, how much would an internist know about this kind of follow-up versus how much does a pediatric oncologist with expertise in survivorship know, and kind of weighing the, the benefits of both or one or the other. I must say that I think every patient needs to have a primary care provider supplemented by someone who's do, dealing with their survivorship if necessary. This in from a viewer, do you track very long-term survivors? What issues do you see in those who are now middle-aged? It's a great question. Uh, we have a large cohort study of over 20,000 childhood cancer survivors 
from a number of centers around the United States and Canada, and we participate in a study together. It's called the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study. It actually has a website if any of the viewers want to look at it, because there's a wealth of information there. Um, and we've been tracking patients who are now middle-aged. Um, uh, we'll we'll, we're actually about to have our first group of patients uh, be eligible for Medicare. So that gives you a sense wow. of, yeah. of where we are. <laughs> What we're learning about um, those who are in middle age is that there are a number of chronic illnesses that the patients have, and often they have more than one chronic illness. Some of the chronic illnesses we see are chronic illnesses that you might not expect in a 50 or 60 year old, you might expect in a 70 or 80 year old. So we're seeing sort of like almost a premature aging or a fragility in middle age survivors Again, this is dependent a lot upon what treatment they had, what late effects they've had over the years. Um, but certainly, uh, by age 50 or 60, for the people who were treated three or four decades ago, there are still medical problems could, to be dealt with. Uh, this from viewer, what are your thoughts on the use of melatonin for neuroblastoma survivors? I don't know anything about melatonin and neuroblastoma survivors. I know melatonin's been used in um, experiments, uh, you know, it, where you grow up cells in a dish, and you know, and you use melatonin, and melatonin kind of affects in in a dish of neuroblastoma cells. But I don't know that there's been people trials on that. Uh, another viewer asks, what about siblings and surviving childhood cancer when you have a sister or brother? Uh, do they have a special program for them here at Dana-Farber? We do have a sibling program where the siblings can come into the clinic and see what it is if they haven't been coming for clinic visits with their, with their brother or sister, see what it is we do here, do some of the activities. Um, you know, the Jimmy Fung Clinic is a pretty special place, and I can imagine a sibling who um, hears about it a lot, um, has some conceptions about it one way or another that are, um, that are helped by actually paying a visit. The study I mentioned to you earlier, the cohort study of over 20,000 childhood cancer survivors, also enrolled siblings for comparison. But it also gives us an opportunity to study a large group of siblings and see what their health is like. And for the most part, for the most part, the health of the siblings mirrors that that you would expect in a normal population, not um, the childhood cancer survivor population. The siblings are doing pretty well. Right. Uh, can you offer some advice for parents whose children are beginning to transition off of treatment? Uh, I have advice for the parents and advice for the child, yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, advice for the parents is what I can tell you is this is a very scary time. Um, there's something about a um, there's something about a uh, clinic visit every week or every two weeks or every three weeks that's very reassuring. And when I see a patient and I say, actually, you don't have to come back for two months, they, that's very scary. Yeah. Um, I think going over things, having a longer visit near the end, making sure you use your social worker or psychology provider to help you talk about these things is really, really important. Having a plan and having access. I think the kids are just excited, you know, to not have to come back and have treatments. They'll so miss you, but a, they'll miss a us. Good, a good they, new start. That's right. That's right. <laughs> all right, Dr. Dolly, thank you for all your information today. Oh, sure. It's my pleasure. This has been Dana Farber's Cancer Conversations, featuring Dr. Lisa Diller of Dana Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center. 
To download more episodes and learn about other cancer podcast series, visit DanaFarber.org slash podcasts.